0: Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. I've been wanting to have this conversation for about eight months now, since I first stumbled upon Jake Hall's LinkedIn profile, where he operates under the name the Manufacturing Millennial. And as a tail end of the millennial generation, borderline Gen Zer, who loves manufacturing and loves industry, Jake's work really hit me home, hit it home and and struck all the right chords in me uh, with the work that I've been doing over the past two and a half years. And I really wanted to have Jake on the show. So, Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. To yeah. kick it off, I want to read a little, I want to read a little blurb from how you describe the manufacturing millennial on LinkedIn. <clears throat> The future of manufacturing will soon be in millennials' hands. Let's build strategies to excite companies and professionals about the benefits of automation, high-tech manufacturing, and move companies into the direction of smart factory and industry 4.0. I have a new profound passion for making online video content that will show how technology in the new world of automation and robotics can be an exciting profession and career. And to frame this episode before I hand it over to you, Jake, I'm really fascinated by the momentum you've been able to create using digital marketing and engaging media to get people excited around manufacturing. So, I'm excited to focus some of the conversation on that, and then I'm also excited to riff back and forth about what the state of United States manufacturing is, why it's so important that we focus on United States manufacturing and some of the problems that I'm sure we'll we'll get into defining, and what we can actually do about it to to solve those problems. So that frames the conversation. And with that, Jake, I'll hand it back to you. And I'll ask you the question I like to ask all my guests. guests. Who is Jake Hall? Who is the manufacturing millennial in 2022? What are you working on? What are you excited about? What is your mission?
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me on. Um, Yeah. So who's Jake Hall in 2022? Well, a couple of things. Um, My day job, I'm a business development manager for a company called Find Zelstra. And we are an industrial tech and electrical service company that helps manufacturers and end users with digital transformation and electrical services. So we're about 550 employees spread throughout the U.S., um, really serving companies on a digital transformation. Um, It's exciting because that, that, that ties directly into my personal brand, the Manufacturing Millennial, where I like to advocate manufacturing on social media. I guess my goal is is a couple of things. One is I I turned to LinkedIn about a year and a half ago, because when, when COVID and the pandemic hit, my position at the time was an outside sales within distribution. And we could no longer see people face to face. So I wanted to visit, you know, and, and still have conversations with my audience and, and, organic ways that weren't rushed by email, and messages and constant contact. So I said, I'm going to start creating content on LinkedIn. Year and a half later, I, I've turned myself into a uh, creating a professional brand and an industry influencer, you know, advocating for manufacturing. So there's a couple ways I do it. One is I advocate manufacturing to manufacturers to adapt new technologies and smart manufacturing that's going to make them more competitive and also reduce the risk that they have into the future when it comes to global manufacturing competition. Um, by leveraging new technologies, that's making them more competitive, it's allowing them to produce more products, it's allowing to make their manufacturers, the manufacturing processes smarter. We're in a world where manufacturing is becoming more of a digital process than a manufactured product. Um, it's important to leverage new technologies. But by leveraging new technologies, we're creating an environment that's going to attract a future workforce. Right now, manufacturing has a cloud over the industry where in five years, we're going to have 2.8 million jobs unfulfilled in the manufacturing space, everything from workers, operators, skilled trades, engineers, and business leaders in the industry because of an aging workforce.
0: Just to clarify, Jake, we're focused on the United States right now. So these numbers, yeah. you're worth, you're, you're, you're solely United States of America. Ura. Yeah. Ura.
1: 2, 2.8 million jobs, United States by the department of labor. You can look it up. It's the U S department of labor. They have the numbers right on the website. You can find it. Um, I might be even a little bit low cause those were last year's numbers. Um, but yeah, that's, that that's the state we're living in. We're, we're facing a a pretty big crisis when it comes to manufacturing of not being able to produce the product and the demand and reach the demand that we're going to have in the industry because of people retiring. So we're going to address that from two fronts. And that's what I'm focused on with my brand, the Manufacturing Millennial, creating more, um, I guess, creating more awareness around the, the technologies and the solutions that are available to manufacturers for them to adapt. And then also how do we attract Millennials and Gen Zs into our industry by sharing and leveraging the new technology. Because right now, millennials and Gen Zs view manufacturing as what I call the 3ds 40s. It's the dark, dirty, dangerous, dull environment. It's dark because they view manufacturing as the 1940s 50s, greasy, old machines, super loud. Same thing with dirty. They view it as dangerous because we were told growing up all that ah, manufacturing is not an industry you want to go into. There's nothing there. It's not exciting. It's not innovative. Go, you get your four-year degree in English, and you're going to have a better opportunity and job down the road. Well, we know right now that that's not the case. We know in the United States, the average person who goes to college graduates from with a four-year degree, graduates with $36,000 in student debt. We, in my opinion, were lied to by the educational system in the general public of the United States that a four-year degree was right for everybody. And that was just the next transformation from graduating from high school that you go in to do. And that's not the case. We found out really quickly that a lot of people who have graduated with four-year degrees can't find jobs in their industry. Yet here we are where they were not promoting manufacturing, is screaming for opportunities, is screaming for jobs, and well-paying jobs as, as a matter of fact. For that, You can go graduate from high school, go get an apprentice or skilled trades degree, become a certified welder by the American Welding Society, AWS, go work for an organization and get paid $75,000 when you're 19 years old.
0: Yeah. Can I I, I yes end that for a second? I mean, or you can go to school afterwards, you can get a a higher order degree, and then you can take all the lessons that you learned from actually using your hands in that role and go build a new innovative business and product because you had frontline experience using that technology, doing those processes, building those systems in the early part of your life, and how the degree is actually additive, and you're learning how to critically think with a foundation of real skills development that you did, you know, at the get go, it was something I see, I, I had a, two engineering degrees. And something that uh, I've seen through a lot of engineering programs is engineering programs don't necessarily teach you how to be an engineer or how to go actually make stuff. And yeah. um, it strikes me that and you, you know, you can solve for this with internships and co-ops throughout your program, but it strikes me that do a lot more good to go down that route that you're that you're talking about with with Hey, go you work with your hands for a while, get into the manufacturing industry, learn what the problems are, learn where the failure points are, and then once you go and you get your degree, you actually have a familiarity, you have a mental model in your brain of how how things work, and then you can go innovate even more. So just to yes, end your your thread there and hand the mic back to you.
1: Yeah, and the one thing is like I'm not saying don't get four year degrees. I went and got in, you know engineering degrees as well, and I've used a lot of the skills that I gained from there. But one thing that we're that one thing that we're promoting is a lot of educational opportunity that doesn't create that doesn't alleviate to business opportunity of getting hired down the road. We are so focused on general ed, general ed, you know, classes and degrees that don't match the current industry demand that's out there. So here's the thing. For a majority of people, people going to get engineering degrees are gonna get engineering degrees because that's what they want to do. The issue we're facing is a lot of people who are not being informed about the opportunity for manufacturing are going to get something else when they would be good at at engineering, they'd be good at manufacturing, they would be good in skilled trades, they'd be good with working with their hands, they just don't view it as a viable opportunity because they think manufacturing is an industry that you don't have opportunity to grow and that you can't build a career off of. Love it. And and and, and that's just and that's just not the case. I know welders who are making more money than engineers. I, you know, I know great robot programmers who didn't even go to college, who are turning high six figures, making more than a person who has a master's degree who has $90,000 in student debt. So this idea that education and universities and that are equivalent to preparing yourself to get hired into the industry and creating a future stability for you is is not true. What I can tell you is true is you could look at the numbers right now. The average welder in the United States is 55 years old. The average welder in the United States is 55 years old. Put that in a time a time plan of 15, 20 years, you're going to have a majority of the welders in the U.S. retired. But you're still going to mean you're still getting the manufacturing product. I don't think a lot of people realize how much product is manufactured. Within their everyday lives, everyday uses. The one thing that's fun about where I where I work at Findzelstra is I could say everything that you touch, we had an impact. If it's everything from your dog food that your kid eats to the car that you drive to the food that you eat to the toiletries that you use in the bathroom, manufacturing has an impact, and we've had an impact in those products. Well, well so, so, let, so let's
0: let's let's go down that rabbit hole for for one second. So half yeah. of the work that I do through this podcast, the podcast is called Next Frontier. I'm feeling in very heavily right now and going through a little bit of a rebrand, but we're feeling into exploring the next frontier um, with freedom first principles, first principles physics, um, and innovation in industry at the forefront, Um, and with a keen focus as as the other 50% of the work on where stuff comes from. And I think that asking the question where stuff comes from can allow us to build much more anti-fragile, resilient, and sustainable systems uh, in the complex global economy that we live in. And so let's break that down and let's ask, okay, with your job, what do you guys make? What does it do? And when you say it literally touches everything, maybe you can break down that value chain of how you go from your work uh, with the industrial equipment that you, that you guys produce to, okay, the dog food, okay, your laptop, okay, the toilet in the bathroom. Can you walk us down that value chain yeah. of-
1: yeah, absolutely. So, so we don't manufacture the equipment. We help companies who are either a manufacturers or b companies who already have systems in place to modernize them to a, a new transformation of technology, digital transformation, automation roadmap. There's a bunch of terminologies you can use, but what we're helping manufacturers do is a lot of take, a lot of cases, a Brownfield site who's had been manufacturing product for a long time, we're allowing them to stay more competitive and to improve their process and output and quality and cost to reduce labor and all the benefits that come from automating as a focus. So we touch all different industries from food to consumer goods, to agriculture, to wastewater treatment, to automotive. I mean, really anything and, and and everything. That's the one thing when we're when we're you know across dozen, you know, dozens of states working in consistently we have that reach and impact. But but the point of the matter is, I don't think a lot of our industry realizes where product comes from or what goes into it. For example, let, let's just let's just relate to COVID. Everyone can relate to COVID, you know, currently right now, because we're still living in it. But I don't think a lot of people realize that when COVID came and all of a sudden we had this massive um. Supply chain gap for PPE, for masks, N95, you know, gowns, respirators, all this stuff. We didn't realize that a majority of this product is even manufactured in China. In fact, I think when you – excuse me, it manufactured in the United States, it's manufactured in China. When you look at like N95 masks, I think it was like 93% before COVID was manufactured overseas. So how does that show when, when we were in a current situation, America felt it, right? Because you couldn't get masks. You, you People were literally running around wearing headbands or bandanas as a mask for the first six months because you couldn't go to a store and buy something. I think that just shows how important for us to reevaluate where we're manu- what product we're manufacturing domestically and how it affects our supply chain. Manufacturing going into... Going into COVID, I think we we viewed as a global supply chain as something as America just did. We produced a lot of product overseas. It was shipped here. It was manufactured here. And that that was the case. But when COVID came, all of a sudden, all the ports were getting shut down. We weren't getting product out. We realized, holy cow, how much stuff is affecting us on a daily basis. When you have Whirlpool, who manufactures dishwashers and you know, dryer machines and appliances only running three or four days a week right now because they can't get the microchips that are being manufactured overseas because they're stuck on a ship in San Francisco. We need to reevaluate our supply chain and what manufacturers are producing. And larger manufacturers need to evaluate what is the benefit of manufacturing product overseas when I can't get it. The idea that a lot of product over, and there, there's, there's cases for everything, but the idea that labor, that the product manufactured overseas is cheaper, we're finding out is becoming more and more, not necessarily of a myth, but not a complete fact. China is integrating more robots than the next five countries combined in the world. That's a statistic by the International Federation of Robotics. China integrated more robots last year than. South Korea, Germany, the United States, um Indonesia and one other country like the next 5 countries come out. I have to look what the other ones were. But that just shows statistically how we viewed China as this, you know, cheap labor force well how come they're automating more than any other country how come they just rolled out a plan a month ago where they're going to have they're going to be the leader of robotics and automation in the next five years they're going to produce more industrial robots they're going to integrate more industrial robots they're going to automate more heavily and they're going to produce more and more product than any other country
0: so how do they go from yeah yeah well so so that that's the that's that's the china topic and maybe a, a a segue to 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 a prerequisite before we dive into that. I, I'm sure, and I've seen your content, and I know that, that you talk about this. Can you lay the, lay the historical framework for where the United States is now with our manufacturing base? So let's assume, as we just talked about, manufacturing is really important. Everything that you touch in your life needs to be manufactured somewhere. And when that comes from far away, as my audience has heard me talk about before, that's exceptionally dangerous, especially over the long term when you have geopolitical instability, economic instability, weather events that are complex, whatever it might be. So let's let's leave that as a, as a given that manufacturing is so important. We need to ask where stuff comes from. The United States used to be the world's industrial base. We 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 were not only the bed of the war of the world during World War II, we were also the iron and oil basket of the world. Um, can you walk us through what happened and where we are now? So, what was our high? Take us, take us to our high, and maybe how we got there, and then through how that high transitioned into the low, and describe where the low is now. If, 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 if that's yeah. the-
1: I mean, I can't, I can't go into detail because honestly, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers. Of um, you know, our manufacturing was the high, the high point. You know, I want to say in the '60s and '70s is where we had the the largest. Um, the largest percentage of our GDP was in manufacturing. Now granted 11 or 12% currently of our our current U S GDP is still manufacturing. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry, but I would say a majority of our manufacturing was high in the sixties and seventies, right. When industry 2.0 was transforming into industry 3.0 with the idea of robotics and automation and flexible workstations and stuff. Um, But over time, I don't want to say necessary manufacturing depleted, but new opportunity in industries opened up. The idea of the computer and, you know, it, the internet and the dot-com bubble and all these other industries began to expand. So it's not that necessary manufacturing shrink, it's that other industries grew and more industry grew. And with a more industry, industry, there becomes more competition for demand, for labor, for people, for talent. Um, And you had people who were at one point in time going to become engineers who are now software engineers or software developers or iOS developers or app developers. I mean, so you have one point in time, the technical people went to engineering because that's what the industry was. Um, But going into the current state that we're in today, 96 to 98% of manufacturers in the United States are small to medium-sized manufacturers, which represent under 50 employees. So of all the businesses, the total amount of businesses, 96 to 98% of them are small to medium-sized manufacturers. There are the big ones out there. There's the big ones like the big 3 in automotive and you know the giant deers and the Procter and Gambles and the you know the p and the the SCJs and all that. There's a lot of large manufacturers, but we got to realize the companies themselves a majority of them are small to medium-sized manufacturers. And the issue that we're facing is not the, is- the issue, but the, the, the condition that we're in is large companies can set up programs to automate, to digitally transform. But small companies who don't necessarily have the resources to hire a full-time controls engineer or hire a, a, a team that can build out an automation roadmap, um, they struggle because they don't have that that depth of knowledge. What we're seeing now when it comes to industry 4.0 and a lot of technology is the the convergence of new technology and the ability to integrate it and adapt it. And I think that's a really exciting time where that. We're in with our current state of US manufacturing is there's a lot of awesome solutions that can help small and medium-sized manufacturers automate. Like a lot of people say, oh, collaborative robots aren't meant for everything. Collaborative robots you know, can't be used in all sorts of environments. But the one thing that collaborative robots did bring was reduce the skill gap or the skill curve that's needed to automate a solution. Is it the best way to do it? Not always. But- it allowed people to say, hey, I can program a robot via an iPad interface or a drag-and-drop interface rather than this complex text code that I oh, needed to have a lot of experience in.
0: So collaborative robots, Can you? Def- I'm also going to drop a note. If you haven't listened to the episode that we did on digital transformation with Keith from PTC, I highly recommend going back to uh, to listen to that. We'll link that right at the top of the show notes so that you can click into it pretty easily. Um, we delve pretty deep into the digital transformation and whatnot there. However, um, if you don't mind, could you maybe dive into like what is the co- what is the collaborative robot? I don't think that we talked at all about that. Um, yeah. with Keith, we talked more on the digital side. So let's maybe move into the hardware and the interfacing with the you know easier GUIs and
1: yeah, and I'll keep it pretty high-level terminology, but like the idea of industrial robots came around 40, 50 years ago is when we really started doing stuff. And that was back when like we were just running stuff on hydraulics, and then it turned to Stepper drives, and then it turned to servo drives. But an industrial robot is a flexible, four to six-axis degree of freedom mechanical system. It allows you to have flexibility in part picking or palletizing or or moving product from point A to point B or welding applications. They were at a lot of times a high skill gap for people to understand and program because there was a lot of computer designing or I guess you could say controls engineering behind it. For a long time. You needed to be an engineer to be able to develop and create a robot program for manufacturing space. But the the, the state we're in now, you can go to a college and get a six-week certification on a robot and become pretty sufficient in building or programming a robot. Collaborative robots took the space in a lot of areas where you didn't need to have all this external guarding, or all this additional safety, or all these additional conditions you had to worry about when integrating a system, you could design a pretty simple pick and place or a palletization um, that didn't take as much upfront investment. It is I think it's created a lot of introductory levels for first-time manufacturers and and use robotics and automation. A lot of times. It's always the first is always the hardest in a lot of cases, and if manufacturers can have a successful integration with a collaborative robot for the first time, that's going to allow them to stay more competitive to integrate future to get integrate future automation projects within the manufacturing processes down the road.
0: Roger. Okay, so I have there's a line of thinking that I want to go down with you around kind of the economies of scale, you alluded to this a little bit, the economies of scale and the difference between SMB manufacturers, because I've seen, and I know a bunch of the folks who listen to this podcast are in the SMB space um, versus the ability of a large automotive or a Tesla to uh, to go deploy robots and digital transformation at scale. So what you're saying is that on the hardware side, whereas, whereas before the hardware was exceptionally expensive, took a lot of capital to go stand up an, an automated manufacturing line, that the costs have come down so much that it's now accessible for
1: SMBs. Yeah, what, I would say there's a lot better justification for ROI than it was before. I mean, industrial robots before cost. Crazy. Thousands and thousands of a $100,000, where now you can spend a quarter of that cost. So, okay, so what
0: what is the kind of, um, this is an interesting question. And I don't know that that will, that will be able to answer here, but something that I'm interested in is what is the kind of uh, the, the volume quantity um, throughput threshold where robots start to make sense economically, if that makes any sense. I know that it's a case by case basis. It's such
1: a it's such a case by case basis.
0: But, right? What I'm what I'm saying is, if you have like, I've seen businesses where they're making like a hundred units. Each of those units costs ten thousand dollars. Um, they're pretty simple units. You could definitely automate the production of those units, but it makes a lot more sense to just keep having someone on staff who's just assembling them by hand because again, there are just a hundred of them that you have to assemble over the course of a month. It's not that complex of an operation. It's not that high high volume of an operation. So you don't really need the robots. And so the business is, but it is still the business's highest margin item. So the business is kind of like for this one P&L, this one product line, we don't really need the robots. So we're not even going to try to dabble in it. And then you, you have the business that where they're not learning. They're not really going down the rabbit hole at all. So like when, when it doesn't make sense for a business to start going down the rabbit hole into the, the physical digital transformation? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, the answer is anytime. And the reason why I say that is because robots now are not just a capital expense. They're an operational expense. You can go and rent a robot for $8 mm-hmm. an hour. Really, there's a certain sur- there's a service out there called Ross, robot as a service, R A A S, yeah. where there's a bunch of companies. You know, Formic is one that comes to mind where you can go and rent a palletizing robot from them. You're not buying the robot, you're not buying the expense, you're not even buying to program it. That comes as part of the service. And the company will come in and install a robot on your floor, run it for as long as you want and you could pay per hour or pay per part all those different options so the idea of well i don't have a justification for it because i can't automate it you know there's not enough roi well what is your roi what does it cost for you to try and get another operator versus what does it cost for you just to rent a robot interesting and the one thing that we're facing right now in manufacturers is it's not so much it's a robot or an operator is the fact is I don't have enough operators to manage and produce my product. So therefore either I, 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 I just can't simply produce what I need to produce. What automation and robotics is alleviating is it's allowing manufacturers to allow operators to do other skilled, more high performing, high purpose tasks and allow robots to handle the mundane, repetitive projects. You know, everything from, you know, you use that 100-part example as like a threshold. Well, if I'm at a CNC shop and I'm doing machine tending for a bar of, for a patch of, you know, parts that I'm running, well, I can get a robot to program a lights-out operation, so now I'm producing product at nighttime when the shop's, you know, uh, turned off. So I can now go out there and I can still produce product from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. when no one's there because they have a robot.
0: Which is really cool, which is freaking, which is really freaking cool. The, the, the question then begs, okay, so, so let's, let's, let's transition that into the, the millennial question, right? So as the narrative's changing from, hey, you're going into manufacturing, you're using your hands, you're going to be on a line, you're, you're using your hands to produce things. Um, is the is the way that we market to millennials to get them into the manufacturing labor force that, hey, now it's a cool, sexy, you get to work with robots, that type of thing? Uh, or is it, or is the, the essence there that, hey, you don't have to go work with your hands now? You can go code, you can go um, you know, like you said, do higher purpose tasks. Well, how does that translate into the marketing that you're doing and inspiring folks to get into the labor force who otherwise were uninterested?
1: Yeah, great question. I think when we're communicating to millennials and Gen Zs about what manufacturing is now, it is a highly innovative digital auto, automation-based you know, industry where you can go out there and play with some of the coolest technology out there. Everything from, from big data to ITOT to the digital, you know, cloud space to artificial intelligence working with vision systems and robotics for autonomous bin picking and depalletization. There's so many different industries and opportunities that will attract future generations to say, hey, there's a lot of cool technology that you use on a daily basis that is the same in manufacturing. So digital work-based instructions, the same tasks you follow on your phone to build out a recipe that you're making at home in your kitchen, cooking food, can be applied in the same way to assemble and manufacture a component. Wearing virtual and augmented reality goggles and glasses as a fun game can be now used for doing a, a, a assembly or training remotely off of a uh, off of a manufacturing site. So there's a lot of cool technology that I would say we are putting now into manufacturing. That is, like I said removing this idea that manufacturing is only the 4 Ds but it's not anymore it's a really innovative industry
0: one of the questions that then comes up my great grandfather started a industrial uh, vacuum cleaner manufacturing business and vacuum bag manufacturing business right after the great depression when he was in his 20s so the the age that some many gen z and millennials are now just about are we seeing millennials and gen Z folks starting manufacturing businesses that are now like tech first innovation sexy manufacturing businesses or are we really seeing them come into existing manufacturing businesses and you know bringing their digital transformation mindset with them and their and their kind of digital native mindset with them?
1: I mean we're seeing a lot of companies now coming out of high school as startups going out and getting VC funding for a hundred million dollars starting up a robotics company starting up a vision company starting up like like i said the robots as a service company here's a cool company coming out of california who is using industrial robots to change tires for discount tiring and and other you know end users using robotic robotics and industrial robots so there's a bunch of startups happening and a bunch of new people coming um creating new solutions in this space
0: so more than that so so i'm very i'm i'm in i'm deep in the tech world and i see quite a lot of that technology um what i am a lot less familiar with is okay integrating those technologies and actually you know cap- capitalizing and standing up new manufacturing companies where they bring together those technologies to produce a new product here in the united states because something i've seen is a lot there are there are a lot of um, my, you know, our peers in the in the millennial Gen Z space who are very innovative and really cool with their design and designing new products, but then they ship them off to Shenzhen, China, to to get manufactured overseas because that's just standard practice and it's I mean it's pretty simple to get that done. So I'm wondering if you've seen and you have any examples or what if you have any data on it, folks who you know might be getting into product businesses. It's product that we really need in the United States and that business while it might be based in the United States it's also the manufacturing based in the United States using these digital first systems
1: yeah i mean there's there's cases for all of those i mean it's like it's it's not necessary one or the other but yeah i mean there's companies out there who are innovating in the manufacturing new products and components right here in the US absolutely um i i mean i don't i don't really have much more to add on that i mean yeah those are the cases um it, what, what i think we need to do better job is leveraging automation to make manufacturing domestically more beneficial and more worthwhile to them. I think the current state that we're in, they're realizing they can manufacture a product overseas, and maybe that's easier, but that's not necessarily guaranteeing they're going to get it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that's just a, a way to evaluate our process. But I think there's a lot of people here as well recognizing that they can create a bigger impact and purpose. And I think that's the one, one and when it comes to millennials and Gen Zs, they care about, about um, making an impact locally within their community. And I think manufacturing allows for a lot of opportunity to do um, do things like that. Another line of thinking, when we
0: look at manufacturing, it strikes me that, especially with the millennial lens, thinking thinking about sustainability, not necessarily in the environmental sense, but in the just the sustainability of our complex society sense, um, there's, two types of, there's two types of manufacturing you can do. You can manufacture critical products that are absolutely essential for us to number one, survive in our current way of life, and then number two, to move the ball forward meaningfully towards more human flourishing. And then on the other hand, there's manufacturing of products that we really don't need and we can completely live without. Um, how do you view that? How do you frame that? And how do you see the trends in the United States with those two themes in mind? Uh, I have, I have, I have some data on my end, but I'll, I'll hand the mic over to you, and, and maybe you have some insight.
1: Yeah, we're seeing incentives. I mean, like I said, with like the PPE scenario, where a lot of product, you know, that I view that as a critical product. So we're now looking at pushing manufacturing those critical components in the U.S. The same thing we're seeing a lot of stuff with like chip manufacturers now. Where we're opening up a multi, you know, billion-dollar industry chip industry in Ohio, and then there's a big a bunch of stuff coming with um, more U.S. production for automotive here in the U.S., where they're building, you know, Ford's building a multi-billion-dollar facility down in Memphis. I mean, so there's a lot of cases where we're producing product that's important. I mean, in any case, you're going to have the the critical needs of you know what you could argue as national security when it comes to production of of components that needs to be manufactured here domestically. And that's happening in the case, but I think a lot of areas, you know, it reevaluates what is what is critical to everyday life here in terms of what's needing to be produced, what's needing to be, you know, created versus, hey, if I don't get my latest fidget spinner or poppet toy, and that's manufactured in Indonesia, is that as critical to US manufacturing that's being sold through you know, retailers like Amazon or Walmart. With with that
0: in mind, do you have experience kind of advocating with or interacting with some of the larger companies that that need labor force in the United States? Like has has your work as manufacturing millennial has that evolved to the point where you're helping companies, you know, rethink how they market their their new jobs and rethink how they market how they're manufacturing in the United States?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do is how do how do companies project what they're doing? How are they describing the purpose that they're doing to attract millennials and Gen Zs? Um, I think a lot of times marketing, the manufacturing industry has done a really bad job communicating the purpose that manufacturing has to everyday lives. Um, and we need to do a better job as manufacturers, not just trying to push your product down and end users' throat and saying buy this, but understanding what problems we're addressing in the industry. And I think we're finding a lot of sustainable action coming out of manufacturing. I think it's a big one, everything from cleaner energy to um how we're, you know, making our supply chains more efficient to, you know, a lot of stuff that I think millennials and Gen Zs as a culture care about. Um But I think it's important for manufacturers to do a better job of communicating the impact of technology that's there. But more importantly, um, what opportunity it creates for them to work at that manufacturer. I think a lot of times, you know, generations wanting to have a secure future when all of a sudden they see a lot of debt coming down, pouring down, and they feel, you know, they're out of debt. They don't feel like they can't purchase a house, they can't buy these things. There's a lot of opportunity for manufacturers to come in and fulfill that need and say, hey, we're going to teach you the skills you need. We're going to pay you while you're doing it. We're going to create a job for you when you finish those skills for you to work for, for you to continue to develop and grow on. Um, I think those are opportunities that manufacturers can leverage here domestically to keep people involved. You
0: mentioned the sustainability piece that the folks in the and uh, the supply in the, uh, in the manufacturing world that we're now thinking about, I, I am a big fan of closed loop supply chains and closed loop manufacturing. Uh, have, what are you seeing in that space and what are you seeing from a, from a marketing perspective in that space? From a marketing perspective on
1: closed loop? yeah, supply chain, when, I, when I
0: say that, I mean when we're thinking through manufacturing and how we're framing things to, millenn- to to millennials, Gen Z, there's a definitely an environmental bend there. and there's definitely a, well, we don't want to destroy the world around us. what do we do with all the stuff at the end of its life? And it seems to me like there's also this, this movement, both on a marketing and messaging standpoint, and then on a like physical infrastructure that's being set up standpoint um, around closing those supply chain loops. And hey, that product that we're making, it's not just going to end up in a landfill somewhere. It's going to end up uh, you know, back into the supply chain. We're going to uh, reincorporate it. And things are a little bit cleaner. Things are a little bit uh, more efficient, effective. And we're um, we're we're being better stewards of uh, of of our manufacturing
1: chain. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just how manufacturers are adapting right now. They want to know, hey, how does that after I'm done using that product, what's going to happen to it? How's it going to be recycled? How's it going to be repurposed? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a component within manufacturing. I mean, is is it
0: not that it's the essence? But I'm just yeah, curious. Is it, is it, is it's it the essence of, of
1: the industry? Yeah. No, it doesn't feel um, like it at all.
0: Yeah. you know which it doesn't I, have to be i'm not i'm not making that point i'm just i'm just trying to understand how uh, how that's playing into the uh, into the into the marketing messaging
1: yeah i mean i think that's more of a consumer push than it is a manufacturing push i think manufacturers are designing products around consumer based decision making when it comes to sustainability and reusability of components i think that's i think that's a big push um do i think that's that's impacting people to you know, going to manufacturing not directly. Does that maybe impact them on how they decide how they're purchasing products or what they're doing to to, to say, hey, am I going to purchase a sustainable based product versus a non-sustainable based product? Or am I going to purchase from a company who is, you know, doing a, a one-to-one thing where hey, every shoe that you buy will plant a tree? Yeah. I mean, there's there's decision making along that, but um, is that more marketing than it is manufacturing? Probably a little bit of both, uh, but I think what's important is that manufacturers need to be consciously aware of how they're viewed in the industry, uh, where it's not just produce the you know the um, most you know the, the the cheapest quickest part out there. It's what's the story behind the product that you're producing and how is it impacting and changing? I think that's mainly what manufacturers need to be started, you know, to be aware of. If you are a company that can go out and say, hey, we're net neutral in terms of what our carbon emission is and what our production is. Is, is that going to impact everyone? Absolutely not. Some people don't care at all if you're carbon neutral in your manufacturing process.
0: And what does and that I, really even mean in, in today's world? So yeah.
1: And 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 so is is that the decision making for for everyone? Absolutely not. But there are people out there who say, I'd rather buy a product who that is, you know, carbon neutral impacted. I think I mean that, yeah. that, yeah, I think that what companies need, manufacturers need to do a better job of is reducing the risk within your supply chain. So if your risk within your supply chain is getting a lot of components overseas, how are you doing that? risk? How are you reducing that risk? If your, if your production is Direct, directly related to an infrastructure system that isn't giving you enough power or, you know, resources, then yeah, maybe you do need to reevaluate from a, from a manufacturing level. How do you become more sustainable as an end user yeah. when you have all these variables in play?
0: Again, not from an environmental perspective, just from like a business reliability, Absolutely. reliability standpoint. Um, Very cool. So we've covered kind of laying the framework for why manufacturing is important. We touched a little bit on, okay, what does the United States labor situation look like when it comes to manufacturing and, well, not labor situation, the manufacturing landscape and kind of the global supply chain component. We've touched a little bit on on marketing and messaging and a a few tangential rifts over there. I'd love to come back around and focus back in on the labor base and the labor pool in the United States. So let's say we're we're we've established that the United States, yes, we are moving towards um, more innovative digital transformation centric Industry 4.0 manufacturing that's more efficient, more autonomous. Um, and also is producing critical goods domestically, as we've seen Intel's deploying, I think, $25 billion over the next over the next five to 10 years to build new new foundries here. Uh, Tesla, in my opinion, which I want to get your you want to talk to you a little bit about. In my opinion, Tesla is the, the most advanced manufacturing company in the United States right now. And they're a manufacturing company before they're a car company. Um, we're seeing quite a bit of advanced critical manufacturing coming back to the United States, but let's talk about labor for a second. I want to take this from two approaches. Number one, understanding more about what you've learned and what you know about the United States labor market as it applies to manufacturing. And then number two, for folks who are looking to get into manufacturing, what the best ways to do that are. And maybe we can riff on apprenticeships and that whole model a little bit. So I'll ask you, so you said 2.8 million open jobs in the U.S. manufacturing market right now. Is that about around uh,
1: there? There'll be uh, there'll be 2.8 million unfulfilled jobs in the manufacturing space by 2028.
0: By 2028, Roger that. So, so is that because we don't have enough people? Because we only have say 300 million people in the United States, and that's the that's the number of you know we we're missing that number of of folks who are who are eligible to join the labor force. Is it because we don't have the skills training capacity? Is it because of interest? What, what, where is the bottleneck in actually filling those jobs?
1: Yeah, so it's a couple of things. One, the, the first thing is you have, you know, the great resignation, right? You're going to have people retire, and when people retire, people need to fulfill those jobs.
0: Well, so you you mentioned this a little bit earlier. So just to frame the average age of the American of the American manufacturing workforce right now, do you have that number off the top of your head?
1: Uh it's somewhere in the fifties. It's somewhere in the fifties. Okay. I know the average age of a welder in the United States is fifty-five.
0: Okay, so. 55 2028 comes. So they're now like 60-ish, 65, Mm -hmm. and they're looking to retire a great resignation. Back to you.
1: Yes. Yeah. So you have the great resignation. One. The other thing is you're going to have industry growth. You're going to have companies who are continuing to grow, who need to hire more people, who need to, you know, continue to expand. So you're going to have the growth. and, And so you have a combination of a few things. One is you're going to have people retiring who are going to create who are going to need to fulfill new their jobs you're going to have new opportunity which is going to create new jobs and so you have those two which is creating demand and then how you're how you're fulfilling that demand is by new workforces and people coming in that new workforce coming in that they're projecting to happen in the next five years is not going to match the demand and that's where you're getting that gap between the great resignation new opportunity and the people who are going to enter in the industry that gap is you know 2.6 2.6 to 2.8 million people.
0: And is that is that a result of birth rates or interest in the industry? Yes, both. Yes. So birth rates declining effectively and then in interest in joining the industry is declining yeah, effectively.
1: Absolutely. I mean you have you have all these you have all those factors. I mean you have the the fact that um I mean you have industry competition for labor outside manufacturing that didn't exist 10 years ago. How many pe- how many people does Amazon hire right now? millions and I mean I don't know millions Probably hundred, I know hundreds of thousands right well a lot of those people who worked in distribution and warehouse centers were at one point in time working in manufacturing and, yeah. and they left manufacturing to, to to work at warehouse and distribution centers because they might have been not as rigorous of a task they might have better benefits let's face it a multi-billion dollar company like Amazon has a little bit more flexibility in what they pay compared to what a small to medium sized manufacturer could. So when a Amazon fulfillment center opens up in XYZ Ohio and needs to hire 2,500 people, well, they're pulling the labor gap, the labor, available labor, away from small to medium sized manufacturers who simply can't compete with a billion dollar giant.
0: Well, it's crazy. I've never thought about this, but I'm thinking about it now. It also, from the outside perspective, if you don't understand where stuff comes from and how this whole industrial ecosystem works, it's a crazy phenomenon where if you look at an Amazon warehouse facility, and you don't really understand what's happening inside, you can very reasonably assume that it's just another manufacturing facility. I mean, it looks similar oh, enough, it's just a yeah. big industrial building with high ceilings and trucks going in and out. And that's a very interesting like, cultural trend where-, yeah. where even if you take a job at a warehouse, I've I, I haven't talked to anyone who's who's had the, who who's said this to me, but I'm just again thought thought vomiting for lack of a better word. Um, if you take a job at a warehouse, you might think you're working in manufacturing or have the perception you're working with your hands as you uh, initially when you're taking that job. You're not working in manufacturing; you're really supporting a big global supply chain that is dependent on manufacturing to happen somewhere. But where does that happen?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Amazon's doing a lot of great stuff, right? They are pushing a lot of you know yeah. new technology and informations and AWS and a lot of industry 4.0. There's a lot of great stuff. I think they have there. a robotics platform too. Where, oh, yeah. I mean, around. Amazon's actually one of the largest end users of robotics of robots in the world. It's just it happens happens to be AGV for uh warehouse robots. But you know, going back to the whole entire thing about workforce and and and, and, and talent pool and all that. There's another interesting statistic. When it looks at it when, it, when there's a survey that went out, I have to figure out where the survey was, but I remember, I remember it. The survey went out and said basically 7.5 out of 10 adults, so about 7.5 out of every 10 adults, agree that manufacturing is critical to the US and the, to the U.S. economy. Yet only three out of 10 adults would actually recommend their kids to go into it. So even though they recognize that manufacturing is super critical and it's important, they say, no, my kids, that's not right for my kid. And I think this goes back to that idea that we have this persona that manufacturing is, is a last resort. It's one of those places where go and try your other career, go and try and do this. And if it doesn't work out, I guess you can do manufacturing and we need to change that persona that manufacturing isn't a last choice. Excuse me, manufacturing, in a lot of ways, could be a first choice. It can be a career opportunity for you. That's going to keep you. St- that that's going to give you a stable income, a stable career, an opportunity for future growth and professional growth. In my opinion, there's no other industry, and I, I just say that because of where I work. We've had people who started at Feinzelstra, graduate from high school, go in and become an apprentice or a journeyman electrician, who then got their electrician's degree, worked in the field, went to go start building panels, who then went to start programming PLCs, who now is a senior engineer at Feinzelstra, doing very well for themselves, who started out as an electrician. Manufacturing creates a lot of opportunity for you to grow within a company that other industries don't allow you to do or don't have the resources in place to do and is manufacturing perfect no do we have a lot of areas we can improve and and create more skilled jobs and and skill training absolutely but we need to reevaluate how that goes into it I'll, i'll just give a couple more examples um i was talking with a local community college here here in west michigan and they have a mechatronics and they have an apprentice program and all this stuff i said so tell me about your students. Well, what would they call a lot of their students is it's called it's their second career change, where you have had a lot of people in the industry go out and do something and found out it doesn't work, who we went out and got a degree, and then they found out they can't get a job. So they're actually going back and saying, you know what, I am going to go into manufacturing now because there's actually opportunity for me to get paid and for me to grow. But manufacturing is also developing a lot of really cool stuff. There's a there's a great organization uh, put in in Kentucky. It's called ECAMI. It's the Eastern Kentucky Manufacturing Institute or something like that. You can Google it if you're if you're near a phone and you're not driving. Um, but pull up ECAMI Kentucky. And the really cool story about this is Eastern Kentucky or Kentucky for a long time was viewed as the coal mining area. That's what the jobs were. You had half the towns. 50% of the labor force worked in a coal mine. Well, when coal mines got shut down, a lot of these jobs went away. So how do you um change and, and reskill those people? Well, this is an organization that is taking ex-coal miners and teaching them how to program CNC machines, program teaching them how to program robots, teaching them how to program AMRs and AGVs, who are then getting hired directly into manufacturers for a high-paying job. That were once a coal miner. Tell me any other industry that will allow them to create a educational program to reskill a veteran industry to have a future or a second career. That's what manufacturing is offering a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that, that's that's the the tactical, like what's happening on the ground right now perspective. Zooming out a little bit, um, one thing I wanted to slip in that I think. Just because it's so relevant, I wanted to slip it in. I think something else that I, that I've seen that I've been blown away by is how many young people are just resigned to to driving Uber, Lyft, or Doordash um, yeah. with their time because it's so it's relatively easy. They don't you don't have to think. It's not very exciting, but it's just there. So, I mean, that's another phenomenon: the the um, the gig economy and how that's Im- impacted the manufacturing labor force. I think is another interesting trend, but. But rounding back to what you just said, that's the tactical on the ground, okay, there's so many initiatives, so many ways to get involved in the industry. I'll riff a little bit and say, I don't view coal mining as that much different from manufacturing. I I think we do ourselves a disservice in the manufacturing industry when we just talk about manufacturing independent of production in general, mm-hmm. because the entire production chain includes mining, it includes drilling oil wells, it includes laying oil pipeline, um, the entire production chain is so valuable and there's so much opportunity but more than that it's so critical and if we don't have it we can't survive and flourish and live our modern lives and there's another interesting thread here where it's it's okay we're mass produce mass producing once you get to production's what's important it's okay you have mass production on the one hand and things that need to be mass produced because of economies of scale and these things but the other area where I'm interested in technology right now for building technology for, and I'm curious what you think about this concept. So you have mass production and the really cool manufacturing ecosystem that's enabling us to do that um, in a more human flourishing, more more sustainable, more sexy way that we're talking about now. But then you also have kind of like the individual production paradigm that we also, in one way or another, have looked down upon because it's like. Why do I need to grow my own food? Why do I need to, you know, make things myself? I don't want to sew things myself. And what's technology I've seen is also doing is it, it's allowing every individual, regardless of if you actually work in the manufacturing industry, to manufacture things, to produce things yourself, uh, using some of the technologies you've, you've mentioned, ro- robots in particular. Um, 3D printers is another example of this. Digital agriculture, where you literally can get a box in the mail. You have a pod. You put the pod into the box, and you have a self self contained tomato growing system like that, where you have to do very little work. All you have to do is put in some water um, and make sure that the the lights are on for this for this grow pod. Um, and that's another th- version of the manufacturing conversation that we're talking about in my in my mind. That digital transformation is allowing is it while it's allowing the mass production system to take place, it's also allowing the individual production. Um, ecosystem to come roaring back and i'd be curious to 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 hear your take on kind of that dynamic and how that also might play into the labor economics where pursuing a career in manufacturing you might build the technical skills that you need to create a more resilient sustainable and flourishing life for yourself and your family and your own home
1: yeah absolutely so sorry go go back to this. so what's what's the specific question that you had then
0: no i i'm just curious if if you're seeing so you know you go learn how to program these robots for your job yeah are are you seeing folks young folks then go take those skills and create very interesting mechanisms for themselves in their own houses and becoming makers and hackers and builders getting into 3d printing um building systems for themselves that before they didn't have those skills and they weren't able to access it. Let's let's talk about
1: 3D printing, right? Let's just talk about 3D printing, right? It's a form of manufacturing. And I think it's a um, a phenomenal tool and resource that we've allowed to introduce into younger generations. Like last year, there were like 3 million 3D printers sold in the United States, 3 million 3D printers. And now you can say that there is now actual manufacturing in a person's home where they can envision something, they can design something, they can download something, take it, build it, and understand the manufacturing process. And I think when we're developing new opportunity, going all the way back to the idea of Lego back in the day, right? You buy a set, you build the instructions, you tear apart, and you make your own thing. You know, 3D printers are allowing young people to become innovative to start something new where I know people who've built their own 3D printers and then they started a printing farm and now they have 500 3D printers that are manufacturing components here domestically for manufacturers of, you know they couldn't do before or they had to go and produce a, a die and then that die had to be redesigned several times to make the component. Well, now they can just send a digital file when in three days they have a box of 10,000 parts shipped to their door. You know, that's the type of innovation. But then you also have people who were in the industry or doing robotics programming. And they said, you know what? I see a massive demand for, let's say, welding. So then you have this company where there's a couple of guys who were in other industries who now started a company called Path Robotics out of Ohio, who does fully autonomous vision welding, where they can take a part, scan a part, say, I want you to weld here, here, even here. And then the robot will determine the entire programming path all the all the decision making and at the end of it comes out a fully assembled component. you know so oh uh,
0: is that is that safe enough to use in the home or that's still just fully industrial? oh
1: that's 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 manufacturing I and mean, that's, real that's all industrial got it. But what that shows though is how innovations coming into the industry by seeing needs, for, for the space, you know, another really cool one is there's another company called Ready Robotics. They're also I happen to be in Ohio. Um, and they're taking collaborative and industrial robots, rebranding how it's programmed and how workers um, interact with the device to make it a lot simpler to almost a drag and drop programming format. Why are they doing that drag and drop programming format? Well, there's a couple of things. One is... The interoperability of I could use any industrial collaborative robot with the same programming interface is a huge benefit as well. But the, also the ability is it doesn't take long to learn how to program a robot now to do a task. You can program a task from start to finish in two hours. You, had to, you Before it took days, you know, but that came from someone who had to experience an in industry before, took their tools and their knowledge, and then started a company, which you know, is now phenomenally growing and has venture capital funding and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, to loop back, back around to your point about, you know, and, and the thread we run about 3D printing and kind of individual production, mass production, my little brother, when he was about 12 years old, he saved up money and he bought himself a little 3D printer. And he ran, he started building a, a fidget spinner making business that he would sell to everyone in town. And he learned so much from that. And now he like 3D prints these Iron Man helmets and all this cool stuff. Yeah. And how do you think this you know Gen Z, who grew up not only digital native but like at the digital digital physical native for lack of a lack of a better term, how do you think that that's going to come in and influence the workforce in terms of the creativity innovation, et cetera that they bring to the you know the mass production paradigm?
1: yeah, I mean, I think everyone's to become a creator in a lot of areas now where you know there's the the idea of the makerspace has been around for a long time, but the ability to now, Do all this stuff for a relatively low relative low cost is incredible, right? I can buy a pro I could buy a computer, a Raspberry Pi for $50, and I can learn how to program five different programming languages at home without going to college or out taking a task, or I can learn how to manufacture a component on my 3D printer at home. So what what's what's so cool about Manufacturing now, why I think it's so exciting is all these new skills that are being learned by people at home can now be applied directly into manufacturing as a full-time career and opportunity, or for them to be to be self-sustainable on their own. As you said, you know, your friend who's making, you know, cosplay helmets and masks for people, he's turning that into a business model. And that business model is possible because of the technology that was developed in manufacturing for people to use you know and that just goes back to that one entire thing of like why manufacturing is so impactful for a lot of people's daily lives a lot of this innovation and in technology has come as a result of manufacturing it's just they don't realize how it got to them in the first place
0: yeah and it's like you're not only benefiting from the comfort and the creature comforts of manufacturing that we now have where you don't have to go freaking grow your own potatoes and. And you know, source your own oil or dig your own well, or you know, or not dig your own well. Some people still do that, but you 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 get the gist of what I'm saying, yeah. or or send a carrier pigeon across the country. And you know, that joking, I don't know how they actually used to get messages across the country, probably by like horse and courier. Um and you no longer need to do that because we can mass produce iPhones. So not only are you benefiting on that front from let's call it the creature comfort and luxury standpoint, but you're also benefiting because you're learning so much. And it's elevating your spirit. It's allowing you to ac- access a higher, higher level of potential and purpose. You've mentioned that a few times. And yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating. What, what this next generation, as you said, everyone's going to become a creator. What are the implications of that? Especially if you if this. So do you think that the mass production system will be able to recover, you know, domestically to a point where those tools, those 3D printers, those semiconductors, those Raspberry Pi units, um, can continue to be produced to
1: keep fueling this creator economy. Um, I think so, and one thing I think about manufacturing right now with the idea of Industry 4.0 and the idea of Industry, you know, 4.0, and this idea of Industry 5.0, where we're taking the technology and reconnecting it with the worker. Um, Wait, is, I want to. I
0: want to double click on that after you're finished.
1: Wait. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll wrap up that. I got I got one more topic after that, then, but. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think that's the one benefit. That idea of just going back to automation and technology innovation in general—it's allowing individuals and small to medium-sized manufacturers to create more to create more product and be more innovative with less financial investment and resources. And I, I think that's just the summary of it. I could buy a three D printer off of Amazon for two hundred bucks, and I could make stuff and and the one thing is additive manufacturing isn't even just this hobbyist thing anymore. I mean, we're there's a full foundation and standardization yeah. around additive manufacturing, aerospace parts, industry. everything. Yeah. Yeah, a complete industry around it. Um I I'll, I'll have you jump on that one question and then I'll follow up with uh, with the final comment.
0: Yes, please. And then we got to pop off. So, industry 5.0, what the heck is that? This this is, this is the uh this is the first time I'm going to have a chance to dig in with someone who's, who's okay. brought that term. up. So
1: so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this short. Industry 5.0 in a lot of areas right now is being used as a buzzword. And the reason why I say that is because industry 4.0 has yet to be even adapted by 80% of manufacturers. And industry 4.0 has been around for two decades.
0: It's still a buzzword.
1: It's still a buzzword. So the idea of industry 5.0, like being this next great thing. And I'm like, guys, we haven't even done industry 4.0. I can't even convince someone to connect their machine to a network so they can monitor the state of that machine so they know when it's down or not, you know that's just the current state of a lot of manufacturers and so the idea of like oh we're going to be an industry 5.0 now I'm like that's great I'm glad that it's available but when less than like 10% of companies are actually taking a digital transformation strategy of an automation roadmap on how to roll out technology are actually executing on it let's stop let, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves but the idea of industry 5.0 is taking a lot of technology and solutions and and, and bringing the worker back into it the metaverse augmented virtual reality to how to truly take a person and interact with a manufacturing process ask me again in 6 months or a year but right now it's still being developed and 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 for me personally if if a person starts talking about industry 5.0 my my my, uh, my, <laughs> my ears open up to so is this person actually talking about something? Or are they just trying to use the fanciest buzzword to get some attention? It's funny, because um,
0: I so, I get that way sometimes about industry 4.0. <laughs> yeah, And, and,
1: and like, I, you, you could you could ask for 15, you could ask 15 people what industry for, what industry 4.0 is, you can ask 15 people and you're going to get 18 different answers. I mean, that's just the current state that we're in right now with that. But I'm going to leave it with one more note. Yes, please. Manufacturers who are listening to this conversation right now, I want to put a challenge to you. National regulation and laws are not going to change the state of manufacturing to make us a more competitive industry to attract a future workforce. It needs to be done by you, and it needs to be done locally. So you as a manufacturer you need it is your responsibility to look, to impact and educate your local community your local schools your local colleges to create awareness around the space the opportunity that's aware and for you to collaborate with colleges and schools to create curriculum and education that is going to allow people when they graduate to be hireable You always say that, oh, the person doesn't have enough experience in the industry. That is your fault. That is your fault that you have not created a program to educate your future workforce with the skills that they need. That falls all the way back into middle school and high school for you to get involved with the first robotics program to teach kids about robotics, to teach kids about programming, to teach kids about problem solving. And then for colleges and skilled trades to educate them with the courses that they need. So when they graduate, they are hireable. It shouldn't be, we need two years of experience for you to be in the industry before we can hire you. It should be, oh, you went to that school, you're hireable now. That is your responsibility to attract and educate the future workforce. It's not the responsibility of someone else's. And the sooner we can as as a country and as an industry, begin to invest more into our future workforce rather than expecting our future workforce to come to us, which is the case that was for decades before we faced a global pandemic and a crisis back in 2008, where we had an unlimited labor force. Shame on us for in a lot of cases, taking advantage of paying a person $8 an hour and thinking they can make a living off of it by, by not investing in their future careers and adapting new innovation and technology that's gonna want them to stay in the manufacturing. So now we're playing catch up in an industry where there's a lot of under a lot of other industries that are being more impactful and paying them more than what manufacturing is. It's our responsibility now to catch up and to re-educate our schools, our educational systems on the importance of manufacturing to make it more attractive for them to go into our industry. That's that's about all I have to say.
0: I'm um, <laughs> main, i main, main and make it fun and have fun yeah. and don't make it boring engage and create lucrative, easy, lucrative, and fun opportunities to collaborate, learn, and grow as companies and as individuals. Um, And from my end, I'll give a note to all the innovators and entrepreneurs out there, don't be afraid of manufacturing. It's really freaking cool, really fun. And uh, guys like Jake are doing God's work. advocating and showcasing how cool and fun it can be. So Jake, thank you for the great work that you do. I very much appreciate you coming onto the show before we wrap up. I know that you just had a final thought, but if you have any more final thoughts, uh, please let it, let me know. And then the last piece is please drop your, your connection. Where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? And what's the best way for folks to get involved with your work?
1: Yeah. I mean, the best place is reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's where my main profile lives. That's just search. Jake Hall or search the manufacturing millennial and you'll you'll find me. I'm also on other social medias as well: Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, all those places. as Well, my my, um, my at is the manufacturing millennial. So just you'll you'll find me on Google pretty quickly, but on LinkedIn. Yeah, reach out to me if you want to have more conversations or if you want to learn about how we can get more, you know, how we can create a better impact in manufacturing, or if you're a company who wants to work with an industry influencer like myself to you know share your brand awareness love to talk
0: amazing epic and thank you very much for coming on the show Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you would like to follow along, learn more, dive deeper into our content, we are now live on substack.com. You can head on over to maxgoldberg.substack.com. That's M-A-X-G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G.substack.com, where we're publishing all of our podcasts from now on, all of our blogs, some long form essays, and some other fun goodies along the way. The podcast is still going to live on anchor.fm forward slash next frontier, alternatively at nextfrontierpodcast.com, where we'll use it to distribute our free content to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Uh, for now and to eternity as long as Spotify and Anchor continue to host us. Anyway, housekeeping updates complete. the conclusion of that is head on over to maxgoldberg.substack.com to subscribe and follow along for our content.